Well, good morning, church family. If you are a guest, we are very pleased to have you worship with us today, and, and you've actually come at a great time because this morning is the very first of uh, a number of sermons that are forthcoming on the book of Romans. We're just beginning our journey through the book of Romans this very morning. And so I would invite you in your uh, bulletin, you'll find, a, or in your worship guide, you'll find a, a page here uh, that's got some of the notes on it for you that might help you as we, uh, as we work together through this first part. But the book of Romans is considered to be the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. It's his great manifesto, as it were, of the, of the Christian faith. It could be argued, and many have, that the book of Romans has actually had a bigger impact on the history of humanity than any other book of the Bible. Uh, the, the list of luminaries who have, whose lives have been changed through this book is long, but let me highlight four historical figures. One would be St. Augustine, who is one of the greatest early fathers of the church, uh, a great theologian and a philosopher, but many don't realize that he started out as a young, reckless, immoral youth who one day overheard a child saying, pick up and read. And he picked up Romans 13, he opened his Bible to that, and God brought him to conviction of his sin through verses 13 and 14 and saved his soul. Martin Luther rediscovered the doctrine of justification through faith alone. It, from Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and started the Protestant Reformation, which shook the world. And then John Wesley, after a failed missions experience in North America, two years in the colonies, went back to England dejected, and in reading Luther's introduction to the book of Romans, God saved his soul. And used him to light the fires of revival on both sides of the Atlantic in the 18th century. John Bunyan, it was the book of Romans as he was in Bedford Jail that inspired him to write Pilgrim's Progress. So while Romans is an incredible book that has shaped the history of civilization, we need to remember that it was also a personal letter written by Paul to Christians in the imperial capital of Rome. This is a city that he had not yet ever visited, but longed to visit. And he, just, he states that in the very beginning, we'll be looking at this next week, his great desire to visit them soon. And we see this again at the end of the letter. And he actually wants to be helped by the Roman church in his missionary uh, goal to reach the unreached. His, his goal, his target was set on the, the outer rim of the, of the known world. That would be Spain. So his plan was to, to go to Rome, to spend time there, being encouraged and encouraging the church. And he wanted to preach the gospel in this great imperial capital. But he wanted them then to help send him to Spain. And we're going to look at that a little bit next week and then later when we get to chapter 15 uh, in, the, in, this, in this series. Well, most scholars agree that Paul wrote Romans during his third missionary journey. So it was probably A.D. 57, 20-something years, maybe 22 years after Paul was converted on the Damascus Road. So he had been uh, involved in taking the gospel to the unreached for many years. And probably he wrote this 
book or this letter from the city of Corinth. Now, he, he, we get some of this from internal evidence. There's a lot of internal evidence. Some of it is, is we states at the end of his letter in chapter 15 that he plans to come to Rome to finally visit them after taking an offering that Gentile Christians throughout Asia and Europe had, had, had contributed to help the impoverished uh, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so he's about to leave and head east with a plan to then come back west on his own volition. Well, little did he know that it would be three more years before he'd actually make it to Rome, and he would do so in chains. But we see in this, in this letter that Paul was concerned for the unity of the church in Rome. The church was made up of Gentile and Jewish Christians, and he's calling them to unity around the gospel. So his agenda here is to help unify the church and to prepare them for his visit, okay? And in doing so, he unpacks very systematically the message of the gospel. And so in the book of Romans, Paul answered the question that we looked at a month or two ago that Jonah asked God himself. How can you be righteous in two ways? How can you be righteous both in your just wrath against sin, which is what Jonah was all about, forgetting that he too was an enemy of God, okay? Um, how can you be righteous in your judgment and in your wrath, but also righteous in your grace by forgiving your enemies? I mean, you can't do both at the same time and, and be righteous, God. That was Jonah's accusation and question. And Paul answers that. He explains to us, we spent a lot of time as a church family going through the Gospel of Matthew. He explains what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. And that is God's work of justification for all of us. So I want to encourage you to look at the front of your, of your bulletin, um, God's work of justification for all who are in Christ. You'll see a, a picture here or a, a, a drawing of, of, on, of, of, on the left, you might see the words wrath, God's righteousness. Romans is all about God's righteous wrath meeting his righteous grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the red here on the cross res, uh, symbolizes his grace, the blood of Jesus covering our sin. And the darkness on the cross here is representing our sins being laid on Christ. And therefore, God being both just in his wrath and in his grace. The wrath of God meeting the righteousness uh, and the grace of God on the cross. So how can sinful people be reconciled with the holy God? I mean, we are all sinners. Well, the answer is righteousness, not our own righteousness, but God's righteousness given or imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful and freeing truth that is. Luther reflected on his discovery of this precious truth in Romans chapter 117 with these words. He said, I had longly, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously is pun in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us through faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage, this passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. End quote. So if I had to summarize all that into one line, it would be good news. Good news for the nations. Righteousness through faith in Christ. The ESV study Bible uh, puts it well, a little more uh, wordy. But it says, the theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judging and saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ, God judges sin and yet at the same time manifests his saving mercy. Now, back in the day, before Facebook and FaceTime and iPhones and instant messaging and texts, all right, if you can think way back before that day, a long, long time ago, there was a time in which we communicated with distant loved ones through something called letters. What that meant, for, for those of you who are a little younger, some of our uh, teenagers and millennials in the room, I just want to kind of break this down. What it meant was you would take a piece of paper and a pen, or maybe a pencil, and actually write down your thoughts to somebody. And then there's this thing called a stamp. And you would put the stamp on there and then put it in the mailbox. Uh, or if you're really in a rush, you might take it to a post office and drop it in a letterbox. And then you would wait. You'd wait a few days, maybe a week, to get a return, depending on where that person was. If you're overseas, there's something called an airgram that you might fill out and, and post. And it might take you a month to hear back from your loved one. But one of the benefits of writing letters is that you had to take the time to think about what you wanted to communicate to your loved one. So there was actually an art to writing a good letter. So this is before it was just, hey, what's up, right? It was, there was an art, and part of that was the introduction. And so I used to actually labor over that part. You know, what do you say in that first line to a loved one? And oftentimes I'd have to kind of scratch it out and start over because it just sounded a little too cheesy um, or, or maybe it wasn't quite good enough. And often I would just settle for that common five-word standard introduction. Dear Beth, how are you? Question mark. So I labored over that, that first line. Well, the Apostle Paul had no problem with introductions. In fact, everything that our brother Ken read to us this morning, all 131 words, okay, was one Pauline sentence. One sentence. Um, Greek students have a lot of fun having to diagram this sentence that you just read for us, okay? Um, all one sentence, and I wonder if he could actually say it maybe without taking a breath. Um, I don't know. Seven verses, one introduction. Well, what is in an introduction? Well, there's a lot in an introduction uh, if it's been written by Paul. And so our sermon this morning is all about Paul's introduction. But there's three things I want you to get from his introduction, okay, uh, that, that tell us about this whole letter that we're going to be studying for this next year or year and a half or however long it takes us to get through Romans. Well, the first point here that we see in his introduction is that Paul's letter to the Romans is all about God. We see that in the very first verse. It is all about 
God. He writes, Paul, by the way, in, in ancient times, it was normal to not start with dear John, but to actually start with the letter writer's name, and then the person that you're writing to, you would actually say, Paul to Festus, or to whoever, but um, Paul was great at inserting lots of stuff in between. And so, here he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, and we see this here, that more than any other epistle, Romans is indeed a book about God. The, the word theos in Greek for God is used 153 times in this one letter. And that is important because there's nothing in life that is more important than knowing God. And that's what this letter is all about. How can we actually know God? Well, God is triune. Now, maybe you have been a Christian for a long time. And you take that for granted. Well, of course, God's a trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Maybe even you've seen that before. If you're somewhat of an apologist and you've been like having to uh, debate Christianity with others, with secularists or with Muslims, maybe you see it a bit as a liability. Because it's kind of hard to explain how three is one. And many of our illustrations that we use, you know, the apple illustration, or water, fire, ice, you know, or not water, fire, ice, sorry, water, ice, vapor, forget I said fire. Um, that, those are the elements. Um, water, fire, ice, well, that, 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 it falls short a bit. That's kind of like modalism, actually, okay, to try to fully illustrate. So maybe you struggle a bit with, hey, you know what, I sure wish things were a little more simple in our faith. But I, I want to tell you that that first of all, we believe the Trinity because this is how God reveals himself, but it is an incredibly deep and rich and blessed doctrine that God is by nature relational and for eternity past has dwelt in perfect relationship and the Trinity is the model for human relationships. The fact that, that we can be equal in essence and yet have differing roles with one another is all bound and found in the Trinity. The perfect relationship is that of the Trinity. And so that is the model for Christian relationships. Christian relationships in the church, the model for the marriage. And God introduced, he invites us to come into perfect relationship with himself through faith in Christ. And I was actually thinking about that as I was, as I was worshiping the Lord last week here. I was just praising God for who he is as a triune God, as a father, God the Father, the one who, who relates to us as a heavenly father. And, and God the Son, whom we can relate to because he was a human just like us. And, and God the Holy Spirit who guides us and comforts us when we're, when we, when we're weak and when we're grieving. And, and he's the one who leads us and guides us. Um, praise him that he has revealed himself to us as triune. And we see that right here in the introduction. In verse 1, he talks about God. And then in verse 2, we see he starts talking about his son. And then you'll find in verse 4... A reference to the spirit of holiness. But Paul's obsession, we could say, was Jesus Christ, whom he had met 20 years previous on the road to Damascus. I count six references to Jesus in this introduction to the letter. You can go and check me if you like. 
But notice Paul's identity, how he identifies himself. He says, Paul a doulos, which would be better translated slave, a slave of Christ. How do you view yourself? It has been said that how we view ourselves determines how we live, how we act. And so it was with Paul. He didn't introduce himself as Paul, the authoritative apostle, or Paul, the eminent church planner, the intrepid traveler, the persecution survivor, the prolific writer of Scripture. No, he introduces himself as Paul, the slave. Now, this would be a shocking term for Romans. Their entire city and civilization was built on slavery. And they knew how lowly a slave truly was. But this term was also a term of honor to the Jews when it was connected with Yahweh. For instance, in Psalm 116, verse 16, David writes, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. And, it's, and Jesus himself was the one who modeled servanthood. In Mark 10, 45, he said, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. And so Paul considered himself and introduced himself as the slave of Christ called to be an apostle. Well, an apostle was kind of like the combination of an ambassador and an Old Testament prophet. Okay, An apostle had the right to speak with authority in the master's name. Okay, He had delegated authority from Jesus Christ himself. But his identity was not, was not caught up in that. Okay, His identity was found in Christ. The, the humility of a slave met the honor of an apostle in his character and in his calling. And the common denominator between them both was Jesus Christ. Now, Paul recounted his conversion experience at the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus called him to know him, to know God, and to make him known. We read in Acts 26, verse 14, Paul's recounting of his experience. And he says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, this is after he saw the bright light, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people that would be the Jews and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's mission was to know God and to make him known. And that's exactly what he is teaching us in this letter of Romans. And he had been going at it now for over 20 years. Well, number two, second point that we see in his introduction. First, God's letter is all about, or Paul's letter is all about God. Well, Paul's letter is also all about the gospel. And we see that in verses 2 
through six. Now, over a little over twenty years ago, I had the the, um, the, the I was first introduced to John Stott's wonderful commentary on the Book of Romans, and I would commend it to you if you're looking for one. And there are there are a, there's a multitude of commentaries, but. A excellent commentary on the book of Romans would be by John Stott. And so he detailed six aspects of the gospel in these five verses from verse 2 through 6. The origin of the gospel, which is God. The testimony of the gospel, which is scripture. Actually, he used the word attestation, but that was a little too Ivy League British for me. So I'm substituting the word testimony. The substance of the gospel Jesus Christ, the purpose of the gospel, the obedience of faith, the goal of the gospel, the honor of Christ's name, and the scope of the gospel, the nations. So let's look at each of these. Some of you are like writing really fast right now. Well, let's look at the origin of the gospel, which is God himself. Verse 1b, we read that Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ belongs to God. It was his plan from the very beginning. See, the gospel wasn't like plan B after Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden. Okay, it messed things up for us all. All right, before that, the gospel was God's plan. Adam and Eve indeed had free will. I would argue freer will than we have because it wasn't yet tainted by sin. And yet, even though they made that decision on their own, okay, of course they had some temptation from the serpent, but they truly made that decision. I mean, they could have not eaten the fruit, right? Even though they truly had free will, it was God's sovereign plan for the gospel to take place, which necessitated a fall. How that all happened? There's some mystery. Both are true, but the gospel was not a scramble for a plan B. From eternity past, the gospel was God's plan to showcase his grace for eternity. And we're going to be talking about the gospel a billion years from now. So don't ever tire of it. The gospel belongs to God. The origin of the gospel was the plan of God from the beginning. And so when we share the gospel with other people, let's make sure that God gets the glory in that, and that he is the very first point. In fact, I try to always start when I'm talking with people about the gospel to make sure they understand that God made them. Like, God made you should be the very beginning of it all. Okay, now you may say that in different ways. You may loop back to it in a conversation. But people need to understand that God made them. God made everything. But God made them specifically and wonderfully. And that means he has ownership rights. Okay? God owns the gospel. God delights in the gospel. And so all, this is the second point uh, from Stott, the testimony of the gospel is the scripture. Just as all roads in the Roman Empire eventually led to Rome, all roads in the Bible, all the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets, all point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we read that, we see that here in verse 2. Paul says, which he promised beforehand, that is the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So Jesus Christ stands in the very center of Scripture. He is the Son of Man of Daniel 
chapter 7. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the word who was with God and who was God back in Genesis 1, who created the world through the word of his power. That's Jesus Christ. And so the substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ, verse 3 through 4. Paul writes, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot packed into those two verses. But here we see that huma, huma, humanly, Jesus was fully human. We see the, what we call the hypostatic union, this union of God and flesh right here in verse 3 and 4. That Jesus was the physical descendant according to the flesh from David. So he was a real human being. In fact, a, a, with the rights of a king, because he was the descendant of David. But he is also deity, declared to be the Son of God in perfect power, I'm sorry, in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Well, if you want proof of Jesus' deity, the, the proof is in his resurrection. His resurrection, according to Paul, declares it. That Jesus was whom he claimed to be. So in this introduction, Paul testifies to the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there are titles that Paul gives Jesus. Remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's a title. It meant Messiah. So that was that special meaning for the Jews. The Jewish title, right? The, the promised one. The, the king. And then Paul also uses the word kurios, which means Lord. And that's a, a term that the Gentiles would have been very familiar with, right? A title, a, like a, a master, a sovereign over you. So these words here remind us not only of the hypostatic union, that is the God-man, but also the incarnation and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that, that he came in the flesh, that he died and was buried, but that, that God raised him from the dead and in power, according to the spirit of holiness, declares him to be the son of God. And I can't help but think of Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we read the Gospels, we, we see Jesus come as a servant. When we read the book of Revelation, we see him coming back as the king. So the substance of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Gospel is the obedience of faith. Paul writes, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The NIV, and I really like the NIV, NIV's translation here, it says, the obedience that comes from faith. I think that's a very accurate, maybe a more helpful um, way of understanding this than even the way the ESV has translated it. The obedience that comes from 
faith. Paul here is talking about lives that are transformed by the gospel. He's talking about radical obedience, i.e. good works that flow from saving faith. Obedience like Abraham's. We read about in Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So we're not saved by obedience or by works. We're saved by faith alone. But that faith is never alone. It bears fruit. And so Paul calls it the obedience of faith. That is our purpose. That is our goal when we share the gospel, when we, when we meditate on the gospel, when we read the gospel, when we think about the gospel. The goal is not just intellectual knowledge. It's obedience. It's a commitment to Jesus. So when we come to him in faith, we don't just believe intellectually that he's our Savior, although we do, but we surrender our heart to him as Lord. It's like we kneel before him and say, you're my king. I, I will follow you wherever you lead. And we do so for the sake of the name. The goal of the gospel is honor. Honor of Christ's name for the sake of his name, as Paul wrote in verse 5. John Stott, commenting on this, said, If therefore God desires every knee to bow to Jesus and every tongue to confess him, so should we. We should be jealous, as scripture sometimes puts it, for the honor of his name. Troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it's ignored, indignant when it's blasphemed, and all the time determined that it should be given the honor and the glory due to it. The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, uh, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, do you have that zeal? Maybe that zeal is lacking today. If you don't have it, ask him for it. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know, those who were sent out in the early church are referred to in 3 John 7 as people who have gone out for the sake of the name. And so we've got a number of folks who have actually, we've sent out, who have gone out to the mission field for the sake of the name. As you walk out, as you look left, you'll see a, a map on the wall and you'll see a little, little screen that's got pictures of them. Our families who have, who have left their country for the sake of the name. And actually in 3 John 7, it talks about honoring these folks, right? And caring for them who've gone out. And so we want to do that. We're going to be having a missions conference coming up in only a month, less than a month, September 22 through 29. And I hope that you guys will all get involved in this, right? We hope that you guys will come and be a part of this conference as we, as we pray for our sent ones and hear about what God's doing in their lives and in their ministries. But on September the 22nd, I want you to like note this, okay? Um, the first Sunday evening, we'll be having a missions fair to honor our missionaries. And so it is the responsibility of our life groups, okay? Now, not, I know not everybody here is in a life group, but most of you are, okay? And so our li every life group has a missionary assigned to it. And so it's on you, life groups, to make sure that you represent 
your missionary well, that you honor them for the sake of the name. So now is a good time to start thinking about it and strategizing about how you're going to do that. Now, last year was great. We had pictures. We had memorabilia from places. We had food. I have a great memory of watching my mom uh, eat, I think it was either a, a fried worm or some kind of a bug. Um, caterpillar. Oh yeah, but these were like, I'm sure legally directly imported from Zambia, right? Um, caterpillars. And I was impressed watching her crunch that bad boy down. Um, so from what I hear this year, we may actually have a little contest. Missions team can decide for sure, but it was floated. The idea was floated that, that I would actually be a judge. And so I was thinking about recruiting my youngest bunny to help me make that determination who is best representing their missionary. So you might think about that. Um, food goes a long way with my heart. Think about whatever may go a long way with Bunny's heart if you want to be number one. But what really matters is that we do this uh, to honor the Lord by honoring his sent ones. So if you're in a life group, if your life group leader hasn't talked to you about it yet, I'm not sure our life group leader has talked about it with us yet, sweetheart. Um, that's me. Um, get taught, you know, hold your life group leader to the fire. Now's the time to be getting ready for this missions conference, right? For the sake of the name. But also... The scope of the gospel is the nations. All the nations, Paul writes. He says, among the nations, including, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And here's what I want you to think about this morning. Okay, we, we talk about the nations a lot and missions a lot. But I want you to, to remember this morning that like the Romans, we are the nations. Right? We are not Jerusalem. We're not the, the epicenter of it all. Okay, this great missionary effort that's been going on for 2,000 years. We're the recipients, like the Romans, who were to help Paul in this movement in getting to the unreached. And we'll look at that next week. Okay? But we are the nations, and aren't you glad that his plan, as it's being clearly unpacked in this letter, was not just for the Jews? But it was for all the nations. God has a heart for all peoples from every race and every language and every nation geopolitically and, and ethnically. Every people group God desires for people to come to know him. And so the missionary strategy that, that Paul used, he found the workers in the harvest. All right. So that's us. Right. We're the workers in God's harvest. And so each of us has a responsibility not only to, to cultivate a relationship with God, to know him, but each of us has a responsibility to make him known to others. And so we have a, we have a number of folks in our community that need to know the gospel, that need to hear of Jesus, that need to see God's grace in action. And one of the greatest ways that I think that, that our, our, our body can do this is through the Heights Ministry. A number of you are involved in this awesome ministry. Right now, we're already up to 75 kids from all the schools in our community. These are kids. A number of them are coming literally from the nations or, or, or from uh, cross-cultural family backgrounds. And these are kids who are struggling in their school. And so we're partnering with the schools. And on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, uh, we're going and picking up these kids and bringing them here and, and sitting down and trying to give them one-on-one -on -one tutoring. 
and we've got a lot of volunteers in our church doing a lot of things, and, and praise the Lord, like we are, we've got, we've got all the volunteers we need right now for Awanas, which is pretty awesome, except an Awana commander, we still need that. Um, we've got, we've got volunteers with teaching all the Sunday schools, young, old, uh, we've got that, but we actually right now need some more tutors for the heights. Is Pam Bristol in the room? I haven't, I don't see her in the room. She's probably working with the children right now. But if, if you don't know who Pam Bristol is, um, she's the one you want to talk to. If you volunteer at the Heights right now, raise your hand. Just kind of look around. So if you're at all interested, keep your hands up. Look for someone whose hand is raised and ask them to introduce you to Pam, who will delightfully um, enlist you after she's like vetted you and done all kinds of other stuff um, to come and serve with the Heights. But what an opportunity to minister to our nation right here in Niceville. And let me say, uh, men, you guys are some of our most awesome tutors. A lot of these kids don't have dads who are involved in their lives. So uh, you guys, as men coming, you know, come, getting off work, say at four and, and coming in here, um, uh, is, it can be such, such a, a role model and an encouragement to some of these kids um, and such an opportunity to build a relationship with them and to, and to share Christ with them. So let's come to our third point here. Um, Paul's letter is about God. And Paul's letter is about the gospel. But Paul's letter is about love, grace, and peace from the Lord. He writes in verse 7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is finally the greetings from Paul, the conclusion to his greeting. All those loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to verse 7, those Christians who lived in this imperial city of Rome in 57 AD, which was about 25 years after the death of Christ. These people were Christians because God had called them to be so, and he loved them dearly. And the same is true for you and me, if your faith is in Christ. So if, if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you say, yes, I am a Christian, give thanks and glory to God for calling you to be his child. And be encouraged. Your salvation is not based on your own righteousness. Right? I am that encourages me every day. All right? Because I fall short. Maybe, maybe you have fallen short this week. Okay? Maybe you've actually, maybe you've really messed up this week. Okay? And you have sinned grievously this week. Or this month. And so it'd be easy to think, hey, I, I can't be in great standing with God until I get a, you know, a good track record here. I mean, I've got I've to kind of undo what I did or, or compensate. You know, try to get a little more on the righteous side of the scale than, than the sinful side of the scale. The, the point is, if, and this is the whole point of this book that we're going to see, you can't do that. But the good news of the gospel is that you, your standing is not based on your righteousness. It's Christ's Righteousness. Your salvation is based on his righteousness in grace. And so if you repent, if you just turn and ask him to forgive you and, and look to him, 
seconds after the worst transgression, you can be fully restored and, and just sing his praise and receive full forgiveness. That's the message and the beauty of the gospel. And he loves you. Stop and think for a minute about that. God loves you. That's Paul's greeting to all those in Rome who are loved by God. Those whom he has called to be saints, he loves, not based on their performance. I don't love my kids based on their obedience. I'm really happy when they're obedient. Catch that, Timmy? Right? Very happy when you're obedient. But I love you because you're my son. I love you, Bunny and Grace, because you're my daughters. And that's how God feels about you, despite your performance. He looks at you, if you're in him, if you're in Jesus Christ, and instead of seeing the, the dark deeds that you've done, he sees the perfection of his son that is imputed on you, and he delights in you, even seconds after a transgression. Let me talk to you a little bit about history here for a minute um, before we land the plane. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of the church in Rome, right? We don't know exactly how this church got started, but presumably it was started by Jewish converts who would have heard Peter preaching in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And the Roman roads were efficient, and so Jews in Rome would have, would have traveled for these feasts and brought this new faith back. And eventually there were Gentile Romans who came to hear this message and believe them and joined these house churches in this city of Rome and actually would have taken over because in, in AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And we, we read this actually in not only some Roman inscriptions, but we actually see this recorded in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, that the Jews in AD 49 were kicked out of Rome. And so the Gentile Christians would have taken over that point, right? And, and so we think after about five years, the Jews probably started, Jewish Christians or the Jews in general, started being able to kind of trickle back into Rome. But by then now, the Gentiles were running the show. So some things had changed. There were some, you know, kind of new sheriffs in town, right? And so now you've got this church where Jewish Christians are now having to kind of play second fiddle to Gentile Christians who are probably enjoying some things like pig roasts and other things that might have made their skin crawl, right? And so there were some theological um, schisms regarding the, the, the place of the Mosaic law, the, the Jewish law in the life of the church and the covenant with God. Who is that for exactly? And are the Jews still preeminent or, or is this really for everybody? And, and how does that all work? And so Paul wanted these Christians to unify. And so in this letter, he's attempting to unify them around the gospel. And so he combined a standard Jewish and a standard Gentile greeting. Grace and peace. The, the Greek, the standard Greek greeting was, was kaire, which means rejoice. Well, Paul actually replaced the regular Gentile greeting of kaire with something that sounded very similar, and that was karis, which means Grace. So instead of saying rejoice, he says grace to you. And he combines it with a Hebrew greeting, shalom, which meant peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from 
the Lord Jesus Christ. When you know his grace, peace follows. Peace with God and peace with one another. When you know his grace, you know his love. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Well, brothers and sisters, children of God do have storms, do go through tough times in life. But if we know Jesus, we can endure the storm and we can know his peace. Let me close. I'd like to do something that I don't normally do. Um, I'd like to close with a prayer that was written by another brother in the faith. And I would invite you to close your eyes and to pray with me. This is a prayer from a pastor that I have grown to uh, love. I've never met the man, but just through his writings, named Kent Hughes. And he suggests this prayer for Christians who are about to study the book of Romans. So pray this with me, and I am praying this prayer myself as well to the Lord. Pray this prayer with me, if, if you will, in your heart as we close this sermon this morning. Father, I know that a humble spirit is indispensable to learning. And I pray that as I now consider the themes of Romans, so great, so history-changing, and sometimes so familiar, that through the study of them, you will give me a spirit of humility, that I will be constantly learning, even from the familiar. I pray that the power that was exhibited in the lives of Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and so many others, that power which comes from understanding the fundamental doctrines of the faith and appropriating them in life will be seen in me. Give me a continued spirit of humility. May I continue in prayer through this study. May your blessing rest upon my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I want to add to that prayer as, as our musicians come up to lead us in our closing song. Um, encouragement to you. Uh, if you're here and you have anything physical, spiritual, emotional that you would like the elders to pray for you with about, my brother's going to come up in our closing song in just a minute and would be delighted to pray with you. And of course, they would be delighted to pray with you later in the week uh, or at any time that you would like to approach them. But let's close your eyes with me and continue in, in a spirit of prayer. Father God, I also pray for anyone among us who does not know you this morning. Lord, maybe they know a lot about you, or maybe they know very little, but you've drawn them here today. God, I pray that, that they would be moved to read the book of Romans this week, that they would be moved to discover and to put their faith in your son, Jesus, who died for them, even while they were still your enemies. We thank you very much for him and for his his death for us. In his name I pray. Amen.